News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's going on in your workplace. Now, here at our workplace, we've had a mix of people coming back, some people still working from home, but in the process of kind of getting everybody back into the workplace. So what's happening where you work? Is that what's going on there? I know people who went back to work and then decided, I'm going to keep doing this in a hybrid fashion. I guess it just depends on what your employer would like you to do or is allowing you to do at this point. But let me know what the philosophy is where you work, simi at cknw.com. Now, many workplaces are actually saying to their employees, we want you to come back at least three days a week. But they're also getting pushback from some of those employees. There was a recent poll done by Robert Half Canada that showed that work attire and distractions are among the employees' anxieties about a return to the office. That's, I thought, pretty interesting, right? They actually feel that they are more productive if they stay home. So how do you work this out? How do the two sides figure out a way that is beneficial to both? Well, joining us now is Amy Deacon, who is the founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. Amy, thanks for being here. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. So tell me, is this something that you are hearing more about these days? Absolutely. And it's interesting, those two statistics that came out. One of the biggest things that we hear from clients is that they actually are nervous to go back and have to dress up in full work attire, especially if perhaps we've put on a couple of pounds over the past couple of years. You'd be shocked how overwhelming that is for for a couple of people, or not a couple, a lot of people. And the second statistic that you mentioned, there actually is some evidence that people are more focused and productive, efficient at home, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the healthiest place for us to work, you know, in a completely remote virtual situation. Okay, but is there a way for an employer and employee to have a productive discussion about what would work best for both for both the company and the employee? I think so. And I think that that's so important for work culture, that there be open communication to really explore what return to work looks like and to find a hybrid model that honors both the health and wellness of the company, but as well as the individual, right? Keeping in mind that our success as a company is dependent on the health and wellness of our employees. Okay, so how do you do that then? If you're the employee and you want to have a more constructive conversation with your manager about that, where do you start? I think you have to try, right? I think that we talk a lot about when we're returning to work and going back to office, we really encourage people to, as best as possible, go in with almost a growth mindset, right? When we think about going returning to work, but we have a fixed negative mindset and we're focused on all the things that could possibly go wrong, we're going to make it bad. We're literally priming our brain to look for everything negative and it will be. So when we first go in, go in open, reserve judgment, and really explore what works well and what doesn't work well. That, that sort of information that we'll gather will be better used and to have an informed conversation with our manager. So you're saying show your manager the benefits like, hey, look at what I'm doing while I'm working from home. Yeah, that, but also, you know, when we do return to office, are there benefits? 
do you find that, you know, it is helpful to communicate and collaborate and be creative with your team members in person, right? Where you're, where you're kind of going in without a bias and able to speak to what are the pros and cons of in-office work and what are the pros and cons of working from home. So again, bringing that information forward to whether it's your HR and manager and having a productive conversation about like, what, how that could inform a hybrid model. Now, for an employer, though, this this sounds like it could be difficult because, you know, you want to have a company policy, but what we're talking about here sounds like it's much more individual. Well, I think that at the end of the day, the company is going to, I think the majority will rule, right? And I think that also we have to keep in mind that companies are, they, they have their own ethos and their own culture that they're trying to create. And I think that one thing that we you know, I certainly haven't heard enough about is that when working 100% remote and virtually, people are more likely to experience burnout. And I think that sometimes when we hear about companies that are pushing for employees to go back two days a week or three days a week, it feels it feels like too much. But I do think from a, a mental health perspective, it's important to remember that there are benefits to interacting with people in real life. You know, one of the things that we often forget is even pre-pandemic, one of the things that we were seeing in the mental health arena was a growing epidemic of loneliness, right? And sometimes being with different people that we didn't necessarily choose to spend our time with, but it can actually be so good for our mental and emotional health, as well as just forcing us to learn how to share space with people that are different from us, uh, which when I look at, you know, our political and social landscape, I think we could all benefit from a little bit. You know, Amy, listening to you there, two things struck me. One, you really are a counselor because you were being very (laughs) diplomatic in how you said that. And two, the thing is, what you're telling us is our social skills need some work. Heck yes, they do. I don't mean to, uh, yeah, 100% they do. Listen, we live in a cancel culture. We say one thing that people don't like and there's no space for forgiveness. There's no space for reconciliation or remedy. And it's awful. It's awful. And it, it puts people that already feel as though they're on the fringe into a really dark space. So no, I think it's, I think it's a lost art that we need to reclaim in order to, you know, really sustain and, and support our civilization. Yes. Okay, so yeah, so you're saying going back into the workplace is a good way to teach us also how to compromise with people, how to live with people around us. Yes, it's it's uh, what I what I say to my clients is I tell them it's almost like eating broccoli. It's not going to taste super great, but it's really good for you, and it's really good for for communities and just social groups on a whole. You know, one other thing that I'll add is. I often, I've, I've worked with people just as they're retiring. And one of the saddest things is when people retire and they realize that sort of all that they had was, was their work and they, they really sort of missed out on growing relationships. And it's something that I'm really pushing people to consider, you know, just taking inventory, whether it's at work or in their community, but just exploring, you know, are there, again, are there benefits in returning to the office? Are there people that I could connect with? Things that people that perhaps I have more in common with than I originally thought. Don't, don't miss out on that opportunity. That's a good way to put it. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for that. Great advice. My absolute pleasure. That's Amy Deacon, founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling, talking about trying to work out that balance between your manager, your employer, and you and figuring out how you're going to deal with getting back to work. So maybe there's a company-wide policy, but if maybe you just want to go in three days a week, trying to 
get that language to so that you both understand each other and can work it out to your benefit. Now, some people may find that their manager or employer doesn't want to hear it, that they just say, get back into work. That's how we want it. But Amy had a very good point there. Our social skills probably do need some work right about now, right? We have forgotten sometimes how to be social with each other, how to be more understanding with each other. Maybe getting everybody back into the same space would help with that. What do you think? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Let's talk about travel, shall we? Global News has learned that the Prime Minister has agreed to scrap the country's COVID-19 vaccine mandate at the border. Also agreeing to make the ArriveCan app optional for travellers entering Canada. So the decision to let these current measures expire on September 30th was made this week. And that's according to a senior government source that uh, Global News did confirm, as I mentioned. So what does this mean for travel? Joining us now is Natalie Preddy, a travel and lifestyle expert. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning, Simi. So is the travel industry bracing for this? Is this the thing that is going to make a difference in tourism? I think so. You know, this is really what people have been calling for for months now. And, you know, um, the summer travel season is over. New Zealand, which we know has been the strictest with all of their uh, their rules surrounding uh, travel, they've even dropped their restrictions when it comes to inbound travel. So we're really the last ones to be to be doing it. I think this will definitely, um, this, this will be great. And as we're heading into fall shoulder season, you know, this is when the leaves change, people start coming to see that because it is so unique and beautiful in Canada. I think this is, this is really going to be good for our tourism industry. So everybody is kind of bracing for this, I would imagine. Things have been picking up, though, haven't they? Oh, I mean, in terms of of tours, this summer was wild, as as we all know. Um, We, you know, coming into Pearson, unfortunately, you know, we were... Uh, Pearson over in Toronto um, and um, in Canada, we are known for having um, a mess of airports. So, you know, even yes. if you look down at the American um, news, when it comes to the worst places to deal with airports in North America, and unfortunately, Canada's right up there. So we really need to, you know, we need to figure things out um, in terms of getting people to come here to, to just fix our reputation at this point. Well, what I wonder then, so Natalie, if we're ready to do this, businesses are ready to welcome, you know, more travelers, but are the airports ready? Is Pearson International in particular ready? Because I traveled through there a month ago and it does not seem ready to accept even more people. Oh my goodness, Simi, it is a mess. It is, <laughs> Pearson is just a mess right now. Um, and I think part of the reason is, you know, to, to, um, to help deal with all of these restrictions and the arrive can and the random testing and the proof of vaccination, we've had to hire lots more people. So, you know, I think there's been about 600 new hires since May. So everyone's trying to figure out what's going on and it feels like no one's in charge. So, you know, hopefully by eliminating these procedures, we'll be able to streamline the process of people landing. So there'll be fewer checkpoints. Um, there'll be fewer things to uh, to review before coming into the country, which hopefully will just 
ease things for everyone a little bit. Yes, hopefully that would happen. That, that's <laughs> been the big challenge though, right? It is staffing issues. So it's one thing yeah. to say, yes, we're going to throw open our borders again and get rid of these mandates. It's another to actually hire enough people, isn't it? In, in any of the tourism industry parts. Yeah. And of course, we are still seeing that across the entire world. You know, people just the the hospitality uh, industry, tourism industry, the staff just aren't there. And, you know, they've moved on and trying to tell people come back, you know, to the airport where um, the hours aren't great and most people are grumpy. You know, it's not really enticing. So, you know, hopefully by by eliminating these measures, the people that are working in the airport, you know, will be more excited about coming coming to work. You know, it's something that's something else that they don't have to deal with. Do we, as travelers, do we have to perhaps lower our expectations a little bit? Absolutely. I'd say now, you know, traveling, and, and I've said this, so, you know, all throughout the summer, pack your patience and kindness. It all goes a long way. We are all trying to figure out how to come out of a global pandemic. This is, you know, there is no precedent for this. So we're all trying to figure out how this works in all of these new circumstances. Um, and we all just need to, you know, arrive at the airport earlier than you would. And Try to pack your carry-on, you know. You just want to eliminate as many touch points as possible just so um, your whole journey is a lot easier. I'm all for arriving at the airport super early. And Natalie, thank you so much (laughs) for your time. (laughs) My pleasure. That's Natalie Preddy, travel and lifestyle expert, talking about how we need to, as Gordon McDonald would say, pack our patient pants. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Lots of stories in the news this morning, lots of images on social media having to do with border crossings in Russia. For instance, traffic into Finland across its southeastern border with Russia has been pretty heavy in the last 24 hours there. And that is according to the Reuters news service. And they're also saying that the number of Russians who entered the country the day before was more than double the amount who had arrived just the week before. So there's a concern that there is a lot of people leaving the country to avoid Russian military mobilization. Also concerned about what is happening to people who are fighting this in that country as well. Joining us now to talk more about this is Christian Luprecht, the professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. Christian, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. So watching this unfold there, are, are you surprised it's come to this? Uh, well, Putin is not one to make U-turns and not one to apologize. And so I think that's what we see here. And he times his decisions quite carefully. So the announcement of the mobilization was timed with Biden's speech at the UN General Assembly saying that uh, uh, the U.S. and allies will continue to persist and support Ukraine. And uh, so I think this is sort of his messaging, along with sort of the threat of nuclear weapons, that the West should not be sending more weaponry and in particularly heavier weaponry and longer range weaponry. So there's, for instance, a HIMARS system that can fire up to 300 kilometers. Currently, the ones that the Ukrainians have only goes about 90 kilometers max. 
The Germans have been urged to provide Leopard 2 tanks, but they haven't so far. So this is sort of, I think, Putin's way of negotiating his way through his current conundrum uh, that uh, the West should not escalate in terms of uh, what support it provides for Ukraine. Right. But when we see what's happening, the way Russians are resisting or the way they are being called up, doesn't that really show the West that this is not a a solid situation? Yeah, so it's the first time in his speech there on television that Putin has referred to it as a war. And he really doubled down on the framing that this is not just a conflict with the West and with NATO, but it was provoked by the West and by NATO and really framing it as an existential struggle for Russia uh, against sort of Western aggression. And this is, I think, because he realizes and he shied away from precisely this decision um, because it undercuts his legitimacy with the Russian population. Because, of course, the narrative for the last six months had been this is not going to have an impact on your lives. It's going to be over quickly and no need to worry. You remember the famous Ferris wheel that he opened. And there's more of these types of sort of public parties in Russia to kind of show Russians that, you know, life can go on and you can still have fun. And this isn't really something that's greatly going to affect your lives. The problem here is, of course, that everybody knows there's a secret paragraph in the declaration that he signed that nobody knows what's in it. And it's believed that that's likely to say uh, that the call up can be up to a million men. And of course, the decree is so broad that really anybody can be called up. So this is, of course, it shows that Russians don't trust their leadership and their government, contrary to what some of the media have been saying. Right. And also, you know, this is very different now for the Russian people, whereas maybe before they thought this was just something the government was doing and it didn't really impact them too much. Now it directly impacts them. Now their lives are on the line. Yeah, and I think we saw this before, right? Putin has always said, you know, the Russians are behind me. They understand sort of that this is a struggle for Russia and so forth. But really, in practice, you don't need to double down on your propaganda, on coercion uh, of your population if you actually believe that your people are behind you. And of course, we've seen this sort of, ever, especially since 2018 or so, really pick up in terms of the repression. Uh, and that suggests that, uh, that the Russian elite believes that this is the only way to keep people in line. But there's also no clear immediate threat to the stability of the regime, uh, in part because Putin has, as many authoritarian leaders do, set up his regime in a way that um, nobody has an interest in overturning the status quo. Right. But if already he's been plagued with problems in the military about people who aren't properly trained, don't know how to fight properly, obviously that's led to a lot of Russian problems. How is it going to improve when you are drafting people into the army unwillingly? Yeah, so that's a really good question, because I think the manpower that Russia has provided over the last six months appears not to have made really any significant difference on the battlefield. Um, You can, however, argue that Russia and Ukraine have the opposite problem. Ukraine has the manpower but lacks the equipment. Russia has the equipment, but it has lacked the manpower in order to deploy it on a large at scale in the way that sort of Russian military doctrine would call for. So I think this is a way of trying to align uh, the, 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 the numbers of people that are available to the Russian military with the way Russian military doctrine is designed, which is sort of this large scale mobilization that overrules, uh, and, that overrules an opponent. Right. Christian, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been my pleasure. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW.
A very disturbing situation at BC Women's Hospital yesterday. I mean, anytime you're talking about having police inside a hospital, a maternity ward no less, that's not good. So let's find out what happened. Joining us now is Sergeant Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department. Sergeant Addison, thanks for being here. Morning, Sammy, no problem. Can you run through how this all started yesterday? Yeah, yesterday morning around 10.30, um, multiple 911 callers from inside BC Women's Hospital um, contacted us. There was an incident taking place. It was a rapidly unfolding, very volatile incident that was taking place in the hospital. Can't get into a lot of details uh, um, uh, about the, the person involved, just to protect her privacy. Um, but what I can tell you is that uh, there was a mother um, inside a, an area of the hospital who was acting violently towards staff. It was reported to us that she had a knife that she was uh, chasing people around, that she was threatening people. She was acting in a way that was um, uh, violent towards people, but also a danger to herself. This is a unit that has 17 adult and infant patients in it, 20 to 25 staff members. And um, a lot of those staff members did shelter in place. We had staff members who locked themselves in a uh, a nursery with a number of babies. Um, Ultimately, the um, the woman in this case, um, with a weapon in hand, was attempting to gain access to a nursery where there were staff members and uh, and babies. Our officers, officers responded, um, deployed uh, rapidly, uh, attended the hospital. We were faced with a situation where um, we had to make quick decisions and we had to act to protect people's uh, safety. There was an imminent safety threat uh, to public, uh, to patients, babies, and to staff members. Um, uh, our officers um, attended. Uh, they were able to take the woman into custody. She was taken into custody after two uh, uh, beanbag rounds were uh, deployed um, uh, from a, a, a beanbag shotgun. Um, by deploying the beanbag shotgun, we were able to um, um, obtain uh, a compliance uh, from uh, the suspect who had been violent and non-compliant. So, uh, fortunately, we were able to get there quickly. Uh, we were able to take the uh, suspect into custody without serious injury to her and without any injury to anybody else. Um, but an incredibly volatile, intense situation, um, and we're very fortunate that uh, it uh, it turned out safely without any serious injury to people. We've heard that she may have um, been upset because she had had her child suppo- <clears throat> taken by the ministry. That might have been a reason why she was so upset. Do we know anything about that, what led to that situation? Yeah, we do, Simi. I want to be careful here. Um, This is a situation where there very well could be criminal charges that are laid down the road, and I need to be careful about disclosing too much personal information because if she is charged and named down the road, um, I want to be mindful that there's potentially personal information there. But what I can tell you that um, this was an area of the hospital um, where there are at-risk babies and mothers uh, who um, are dealing with with various uh, personal struggles. And um, we are told that there were conversations that were taking place with hospital staff about uh, including MCFD, the ministry, um, and potentially restricting restricting access uh, to the child. And uh, we believe at this point in the investigation, even though there's a lot more work to do, um, but based on everything that we're told at this point, we believe that uh, those conversations um, may have led to um, uh, the escalation of this incident. Right. Okay. So then given that then, I guess people would wonder, was there another way to approach this? I mean, this is such a sensitive situation, as you point out, such a sensitive area. You're talking about a time when it's already, you know, it's a crazy time for women already, you know, postnatal, all of that. Is there another way that this could have been approached? Is there not another procedure for dealing with hospital situations like this? Well, okay, so this is a situation um, that was rapidly unfolding. Uh, There was an imminent and active threat to uh, patients, staff, 
very vulnerable people. We're talking about babies here. We uh, it could have very well turned into a situation like Uvalde in Texas uh, or other situations where. In places where people are supposed to be the safest, they're actually put in extreme danger. So our officers acted um, quickly and decisively to deal with an imminent threat against vulnerable members of the public, vulnerable staff members who were placed in a very, very dangerous situation. Um, And they were able to quickly and safely resolve this without any injury to any members of the public, any patients, um, and no serious injuries to uh, to the subject. The alternative here, had our officers not arrived when they did, um, with the tools that they did, namely the beanbag shotgun that was used, uh, we could have been dealing with a hostage situation, we could have been dealing with an active deadly threat, we could be dealing with mass casualties, and had they not arrived with uh, the tools that they did, namely the beanbag shotgun, I'm not sure what the alternative was with right. an armed suspect uh, who's behaving violently. Potentially the, uh, the alternative could have been uh, deadly force. Uh, we're so fortunate uh, it didn't come to that. We're extremely fortunate uh, that our officers, with their skills and their training, were able to get there quickly and resolve the situation. And we've heard about this more and more, about violence in hospitals. We know this is something nurses have raised. Is there a protocol that police have when they, when you are called into a hospital if there is a violent patient? Well, I mean, in, uh, it, everything uh, operates on a case-by-case basis. I've listened to the 911 call here. It's chilling. Uh, we have people screaming in the background. We have people sheltering in place. We have reports of a woman um, <clears throat> moving around the hospital with a weapon in her hand, chasing a doctor, trying to get into a locked nursery where babies and staff members are sheltering in place. Uh, So in this situation, the protocol is uh, we need to respond. We need to respond quickly. When people are calling us and asking us for help for an imminent threat in a place where people should feel the safest, um, when there's somebody putting their safety in danger um, and causing an imminent risk to staff, babies, uh, members of the public, other pregnant women, uh, the protocol here is to is to is to respond to protect people's lives, and that's what we were able to do. Oh, Wilson, we really appreciate you talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for that. No problem, Timmy. Thanks. That is Sergeant Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department talking about what happened at BC Women's Hospital yesterday. Now, he described it for us there, and I know there will be a lot of questions about it. There still are about what happened in this situation. For instance, you've probably heard in the news that Angela Marie McDougall, who is the Executive Director of Battered Women's Support Services, says she has a lot of questions about this. She says this woman was in crisis uh, because of the situation that you know was evolving there, and she doesn't think that the police response was appropriate. Postpartum is a very delicate moment. It's called the fourth trimester. And it requires an extra level of kind of support and care for women. And this is a a really critical transition between mother and child. How on earth could we ever think that the police coming with a bean bag gun could be an option here? Okay, so that's Angela Marie McDougall from Battered Women's Support Services. This is a developing story. As you can tell, there's there's a lot going on here. You know what? And very significant description there from the Vancouver Police Department about what happened. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this coming up throughout the day today. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. All right, time for us to check in with our Vancouver Whitecaps. It is a critical time for them. And our coach, of course, Fanny Sartini, joins us now. Morning, coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How has the week been? Are you keeping the energy level up? Yeah, you know, mm, both, I would say. First of all, uh, to have some uh, kind of rest after a very demanding week last uh, last week with the two games. We won the two games, so 
we stayed alive, I would say. Right. <laughs> still in the yes. still in the still in the run of the of the of the playoffs. So we had like uh, a few days off because this uh, this weekend we don't play, and we we started yesterday trying to. Uh, keep the energy up, up, up for uh, next uh, next week against us. Yeah, so the schedule's a bit tricky over the next little while. Can you run through that for us? Yes, you know, we we don't play tomorrow or this weekend because there's the uh, international break. The national team is playing. Uh, so uh, we we have this, this week off. But uh, then we have two games to play. Uh, Saturday, October the 1st, we'll play home our last home game against uh, Austin and then we'll play the following week in uh, in Minnesota and uh, those are two must win games if you want to hope to to go to the playoff. Okay, and is it a good thing that you think you've got a little break right now or are you concerned about keeping that momentum up? I think it's a good thing because again, uh, it was very uh, demanding both uh, mentally and physically to play those two games in four days, and uh, uh, we had this. Uh, uh, the guy could uh, uh, recharge the, their energy, get away from from soccer for uh, for a couple of days, and then now we are really focused on. Uh, uh, we had a meeting yesterday, just before the uh, the start of the training session. I thought I had to like. Uh, give them a little bit of boost in order to 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 start but no actually they they were more more uh, more charged more willing to to work than me so oh, good. it looks like it looks like uh, <laughs> it looks like the 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 break uh, served its purpose okay good so where like where are we at in the standings here right now i know you've got 40 points here about 3 points outside the playoff places but what about those teams ahead of you yeah, you know, we uh it's we are 3 points behind the line. Uh, that means that uh, uh and we have a couple of teams ahead of us. So, uh in order to make the playoff, we need to win both the games. If we win both the games, uh, we I think we have uh high chances uh, to to get in also because there's a lot of uh, uh team that play against each other that are that are in uh in fight with us, so they're gonna naturally take off points from each other. So uh, I think that we need to be focused on what we have to do. That is the two wins, and then uh, see at the end which uh, which position will be. But again, I'm sure that uh, if we if we win both the games, we'll, we'll be right. Okay, so that's the key, right? He's got to you have to keep keep that pressure on your players too, so that they know how significant this is. Yeah, 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 you know, that's we know that uh, every every um, scenarios, everything that this team, if they lose, if they tie, if we don't win our games, it doesn't mean anything. So uh, we we have to focus on what we can control, and what we can control is our performance. And uh, uh, we showed in the last week that uh, we can beat every team, and we can play high yeah. level soccer. So we. We have to do it. We have to keep. We have to keep going. Yeah, the team really showed that that last game. Okay, next up though is what Austin FC. That is Saturday, October first. What do we know about Austin? You just played them. Were you guys down in Austin a couple of weeks ago, or not that long ago? No, no, we were in uh, San Antonio. We were in Austin. Yeah, we were in. Uh, we were in San Jose. Ah, okay. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> but 
No, it's a good team. And they had a, they had a great season. They're already in the playoffs. They're number two in the Western Conference. Uh, it's a team who who plays uh, actually very good soccer. But so we need to we need to really step up. We did very well last week, but we need to do even better the the following game and uh, being very very good defensively in order to have the chance to to be dangerous to them when we have the ball. All right. Well, listen, we'll keep our fingers crossed again. Work hard this week, and we'll talk to you next Friday. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That is Vanny Sartini, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They have a bit of a break right now. There's an international break going on. So the players had four days off. There's no game this weekend. The team has just gotten back to training. They did that yesterday. They started. They will have a practice today. They have an inter-squad match coming up on the weekend. But really, they are trying to, as you heard, keep that pressure up, keep that momentum going uh, for next weekend, October 1st. It's Fan Appreciation Night, by the way. This is their final kind of home match of the MLS regular season. So go to whitecapsfc.com if you would like to get some tickets for that. You know what? You should be there. You should support the Whitecaps. It'd be amazing. They are playing Austin FC in this drive for the playoffs. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, municipal elections are less than a month away, and we're going to the polls on October 15th. I've been saying it all week. Make sure you mark that on your calendars. We'll be electing mayors, councillors, trustees, no matter which community you live in. And one of, if not the biggest issue, I think, for communities right across the province, of course, is housing. You need to find housing. You need to be able to afford housing. So as part of our continuing coverage on this year's elections, we are turning our attention this week to the Vancouver mayoral race. We have been speaking with the five major candidates for mayor, and we are talking about that one important issue of housing. So today's guest is the MPA mayoral candidate uh, for mayor. That would be Fred Harding, who joins us. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. So first off, the question that I've asked everybody right off the bat is, let's talk about your housing plan. What is it? Okay, so we have a housing plan. And forgive me, Simi, I just want to address one other thing which which is integral to our housing plan. And that is the breach of the the broken trust between the the people and the politicians over the issues around the scene, this donors list that's been attributed to Kennedy's uh, party. The the breach of trust is, is really important because... We're seeing, we need housing, we need more housing, but we're seeing that the politicians have been using the developers in a way that they're twisting their arms and, and now we're looking at what's going on with this, uh, this, this donor list. People are really concerned about where they stand in this whole process and how it affects them. Is it going to lead to more housing or is it just a fat cat scheme to get people uh, more money? We've saw, it's, it's so integral, it's so integral that we've actually had to design our housing We've seen politicians for the last 15 years or so vilify developers, vilify them to their to their base. You know, we developers are greedy and they're only here to make money off of the people. But then in the back rooms, they're twisting their arms and getting more money out of them. And it's led to this broken system. And so we're going to fix the system. And so our housing plan calls in for flat rate CACs, these community amenity contributions. It used to be a time when developers would provide swimming pools and and parks and and things in in the city of Vancouver. And we're missing that now. Yeah, I was just at Falls Creek and we're looking at that. They're worried about not getting the the park that they were promised in 1990. So there's there's lots of issues around here. So what I want to do uh, from our uh, plan is make sure that we've got flat rate CACs. So 
before anything happens, there will be no negotiations. There, the developers won't have to come to City Hall and fight and, and be brought into back rooms to have their arms twisted behind their back to make more money. Because the flat rate CAC measured per square foot, it's, everybody's going to know what the price is. Every developer is going to know how they make money and how the city makes money long down the line. So this is not from an election to election, but will take us five, 10, 15 years down the line. If because it's a fair process. And the developers don't need to come to me and pay me anything else because there's no anymore. There's no advantage because the next developer is going to pay the same price. Okay, so that's one thing, though. But what about density? What about your approach towards rezoning? What are the other aspects of your plan? Okay, so look, we, we want to make sure that we've got um, mandatory permit wait times. Everybody's talking about mandatory permit wait times because it's we can't have a situation where we're going from seven years from conception to completion on property development because that's what's loading that's what's creating our housing crisis there's no there's no uh not enough supplies being built so now what we have is develop the relationship between developers and the city has become so toxic that developers are walking away we're looking for supply targets supply targets means that we know that we've got increases in the population in vancouver it's about six thousand a year the census tells us that every year about six thousand people move into the city and the, the we've got this the, the math is simple that the federal government is inviting people into the country of course many of them are coming to the lower mainland they're coming to the to the vancouver but despite the six thousand people that come into our net gain of population every year We've only got about six to nine hundred uh, new rental units going out there. So the math is very difficult and we're not addressing the root causes. So they said it was going to be the foreign buyers that, that were causing this issue. And so they brought in the foreign buyers tax. They said it was the empty homes and they, they brought in an empty homes tax and they tripled it. That didn't work. They said it was money laundering. And so we, they cracked down money laundering. They said uh, modular homes, if we built more modular homes, that would work. And then, then they said it was um, speculators. So they brought in a speculation tax. None of it has worked. We're talking about supply. Let's just try supply. Okay, we are doing that. But what kind of supply are you talking about here, though? Where would so, you build it and what kind of supply? So, well, look, we, we have to pre-zone parts of Vancouver, if not if not all of, of Vancouver. So we have to pre-zone. So if in a certain area where you're pre-zoned for a six-story uh, pro property, then you don't have to come before uh, the city and, and try and negotiate to get that done because it will be pre-zoned. We want to make sure that um, the, there's, there's spaces for density in, on the south side of Vancouver near, near the uh, the near the river, through, by the river. There's spaces for dense, more density there. But we want to have a new plan for Vancouver, where, where we can find areas in Vancouver where we can work on supply. But and we also need to work on supply around transit hubs. So if we can create more supply around the transit hubs, such as the Broadway corridor. So what was found there is that there was 30,000 units when, when the initial uh, plan went in. They actually reduced the amount of available residences by about 30,000 units. So we're a city that's in a housing crisis. We have to be able to put those units back into the plan. Right. You mentioned the Vancouver plan there, the Broadway plan. Is that something that you would support? So uh, I support it in, in general simply because of this. So when I came in and started on the campaign, I went to my team and, and, and I see that there's a lot of flaws in the, in the, in the Broadway plan. And uh, the first one being is that there are so many units have been actually taken away. So they whittled down and whittled down and whittled down. And so the Goodman report says that there are 
30,000 units were taken away. Now, it also leaves us with some units which are 400 square feet. So we have to look at, is that going to be reasonable for a person to live in, right? Is that reasonable accommodation? So I see a lot of flaws with the Broadway plan. And, and what I said to the team is, can we stop it? And they said, we can't because the penalties are going that we would incur as a city would be potentially in the billions of dollars. So it's a plan that we must move forward with. I hope that we can find space in the Broadway plan to increase density around the transit hubs. That's what people are going to be, uh, that's what's going to provide affordable housing. Okay, now how do you plan on getting anything done? Like let's say you're elected, not a majority on council though, but you are the mayor. How do you plan on getting anything done? Okay, well, first of all, that's a great question because it's about leadership. And so what, I, what I've done in, in my time and in my career is, is that I've been an effective leader. And so it doesn't matter, you know, of course we're looking for an MPA majority. If we have an MPA majority, everything's going to get done. The people's work is going to get done if we have an MPA majority. If we don't, what I've been very effective at is bringing teams together and, and making teams work at a high performance. That's what I've done in my policing career and that's what I do outside of my career, outside of policing in my business career. So it's about leadership. And what we've seen in the last four years, particularly, is weak leadership or absent leadership. So we need a, we need a strong leader in the city. Okay, why should people vote for you then? Well, because, um, you know, first of all, we're in, we're in, a, we're in a, a housing crisis, we're in a public safety crisis. And people should vote for me because, let, let's talk about the public safety crisis. We're here to talk about housing, but to answer your question on why they're going to vote for me is because as a 30-something-year police officer, and I understand how to tackle the issues that Vancouver's facing now, and it's all across Vancouver. It's the, it's the attacks, it's the assaults, it's the stranger-on-stranger assaults. I know how to strategically target specific criminals, and I know how to target specific criminal groups. And we need to get those people off the streets. We need to get the streets safe again, where you can have confidence to walk down the street. Every family needs to be able to send their children out to school. They, you know that your wife or husband, when they're coming home late, is safe and safer. And we need to have a, a, a city that actually supports its police service and, and a police service that does the job that the people expect it to do. We don't have any of that now. People don't have confidence to walk down the street. Mr. Harding, I have, to, I have to thank you for your time this morning. We're all out, but uh, thank you for that discussion. Thank you so much, Simi. I really appreciate the time. That is Fred Harding, mayoral candidate for the NPA in this Vancouver election. Now, our topic this week is housing. And that's why we have been very specific with our candidates to talk very specifically about their housing plan individually as mayoral candidates and what their party plans are. It's up to you to decide if what you've heard actually constitutes a plan, something that you agree with. Now, if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. It has been varied. I will tell you every day this week, I have heard some interesting housing plans, but I'm not sure I heard a lot of actual plan in that one there. If you want to weigh in again, simi at cknw.com. And we, of course, will continue this. We have one more candidate to go. Join us Monday when Kennedy Stewart joins us to talk about what he would do Maybe what he hasn't done in the last four years, but what he would do in the next four years if he were elected mayor. That'll be on Monday on Mornings with Simi.